Lord, this is your time. This is your time. May this lead to a deeper worship of the one who came. And may we have an experience of his fullness that continues on into our week. Thank you that you have, you have an understanding perfect of what we need. And so we yield to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. A lot of you are travelers. I, uh, you know, after church and talking with you, get to feel and sense it's a unique church. You know, after church, you can hear someone talk about how they were just in New Zealand or Canada or Taiwan. It's a kind of an international feel for our church. And so you're travelers, many, many of you. Some of you have been in these situations where uh, you, you may have been to a city or a country and you left and you you left and you didn't really get a feel for where you had been, right? You didn't, were disappointed, didn't get a feel for the city or the, the country that you had visited. And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried one of these. Uh, I, I sort of look down on these things, uh, disdain these, these charter bus things, you know, the 40 people and the, the tour guide up there with the lousy microphone, you know. Uh, and I, you know, actually, it makes a little bit of sense. If you're only in Paris for 24 hours, um, it's probably a good thing not just to wander the streets. Um, even as good as your, your the GPS is on your, on your cell phone, you know, there probably is some benefit to that bus and that six-hour tour, and uh, there probably is some benefit to it, a guided, a guided tour. Now, I can give you a, a recommendation that's something even a little bit better than that. And that is a personal guide. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, a personal guide. Uh, when I was a, a young teenager, uh, my parents and I, um, just me, uh, unique story how we ended up in London, um, but it has to do with a war in Pakistan. How about that? Uh, long, long story. Uh, an interesting story, uh, but we uh, landed in, in, in London having escaped a war zone, uh, and I remember I was wearing shorts, and it was December, uh, and they have winter there in London, and uh, our first order of the day was to go shopping for, for some winter clothes. My father came up with the idea of a guided tour, a personal tour um, by a Londoner who did this, and somehow he found him, and we jumped in and out of these black, famous black taxis in London and saw, and saw the sights. Now, the personal guide can help you understand the things that you don't even know you need to see, right? They point out architecture. They, they will point out, for instance, on our, our visit, this, this gentleman pointed out that we were standing at the very center of London, uh, which is somewhat near Piccadilly Circus there. And uh, in a very small way, you begin to see the city uh, through their eyes. You hear and sense their passion, right? Uh, it's, it's a fantastic thing, by the way, when uh, a seasoned Londoner uh, says, oh, by the way, that's the best fish and chips in the whole town. You, you become intrigued, right? Uh, you listen in on their recommendations. 
you get to know the city through their eyes. And they are tailor-making. As they go along, they kind of tailor-make, like, oh, you're interested in clothing or shopping. And they, halfway through the day, they can change their, their plan. John's advent is like a personal guide. Uh, he is presenting to us what we should be looking for. Think about that. Uh, in these eight, 18 English uh, sentences or verses that we have, uh, he's, John is a, presenting to us a remarkable person. This is what you should be looking for. In fact, he's talking to us who don't really even know how to get oriented to the very subject. We're like a city we don't understand. We don't know where even to start. And so he's saying to us, this is how you should be thinking clearly. This is how you should get to know. This is how you should receive this one called the Christ. By the way, he's your very life. He is elevated in the most beautiful poetic language uh, that only John uh, could use. John really is quite a poet, and we have only to read the book of Revelation to discover his artful way of expressing things. Uh, John is essentially saying to us, you need to come to know this person who has power and the resources to help you in the most significant way possible. Now think about this. If you could conjure up uh, a Messiah, if you could conjure up in your own mind uh, someone to come help you, right? think about it, the open-ended, an open-ended question. What is your greatest need? What's the most significant thing you need addressed in your life? And I'd like to give someone powerful enough to you who could address those issues. Think about this. We really wouldn't know what to ask for. There's a teenager who'd ask, well, I'd like a car. <laughs> I need a person powerful and rich enough to give me a car. Right? And you, you think about the different categories. Well, I'd like a great job. I'd like a successful career. I'd like the esteem of, of this or that person. Some, perhaps a young adult says, I need a, a husband or a wife. Again, someone says, I need a big chunk of money. John is essentially addressing how clueless we are in the very formation of the right kinds of questions for a Messiah. John himself was clueless. John himself walked with Jesus, saw him do miraculous things, teach remarkable things. John himself, after watching this Jesus, said this, he and his brother James were talking it over and say, well, here's our chance. Here's our chance. And so it's kind of the strange thing. In Mark chapter 10, it's not quite a question. It's more of a statement to Jesus. Listen to this. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> uh, grant us that we might sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. While we've got you, we've discovered our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be esteemed. And while you've got that power, it looks like glory is sort of related to your kingdom. Uh, we'd like in on that glory for ourselves. Can you, is anyone catching this? Imagine how patient Jesus was with, so that's the priority. That's what we... We're after here is you, you sitting on a, on a throne, throne next to me. You see, John, just, just, John knows we don't know what we're looking for. John knows we don't know how to put the categories together. We really would imagine 
that our deepest need is a car. We really would imagine that our deepest need is a moment experience, momentary experience in this life. We really would if we had a way to conjure up a Messiah, a, a, a powerful person who could do anything for us. Think of how off track we would be. Our greatest perceived need is actually not salvation. Our greatest perceived need, and now you think about it. You think about how you actually live. Think about it, Pastor. How do you actually live? Do I live as if my greatest need is a glorified, risen, glorious Savior who is beaming down upon me His grace continually, and I am so safe and accepted and eternally bound for glory? Now, I have other things that I think are more pressing in my life. And so John presents this deep, deep prologue. You will not explore its depths. And he says, if you happen to be a glory seeker, if you've got that something on your radar, if you sense you have been made for something glor that you can glory in or someone, then John says, I'll be your personal guide. I'll be your personal guide and here." is what you need. You need his status. You need his exalted status and that, that it might lead to wonder and worship. And then John gives another subject. He says, you need, and I'm going to give you a kind of a theological phrase, but I think, I think this might work. You need not just his status, you need his revelatory grace. We'll explore that for a moment. And then you need his grace and his truth. And we'll look at that. So I, I just try to put this from a different angle today. John as our guide to glory. Now, let me back up just for a moment. It's very important that we take a moment to notice what I've been doing already up to this point. I've been emphasizing John, the human author. And I think you've all been okay with that. Pretty good. Now, there are some Christian circles that would not be okay with what I just did. They would say, look, pastor, you keep talking about John. Why don't you just say God? When it comes to your, our Bibles, why don't we just say God? Why do you say, like in Romans 8, Paul said nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's what Paul said. Don't say that. Tell us God said that. Does that make sense? You, you're emphasizing the wrong thing. And we say, well, it's not quite that simple. And that is, when we think about our Bibles, our Bibles didn't fall out of the sky, bound, published by Zondervan, and landing on a rock, in nicely leather-bound, or bonded leather, or whatever, calfskin leather, by the way. It, the Bible came through an organic process. Now, this gets us all nervous. Wait a minute, these are sinners, John's a sinner, how can something divine be produced by a sinner? Welcome to the mystery of inspiration the process whereby we, we have our Bibles. So what we do is we say that you can actually read Moses' personality when you read the Pentateuch. You get a feel for Moses. And when you read Peter, you get a feel for Peter, and you get a feel for Paul. Now that feel you get is just the feel. 
You're getting the sense of their personality. And somehow, in the inspiration of Scripture, God so managed the process that the sinfulness of Paul didn't get into the, pro- into the final product. So we believe in what's called organic inspiration, if you, believe, like, if you like the term. Organic means that God used the concerns and the thoughts and the, the, uh, the, 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 the desires of the writer and the, the, the perceptions that the writer had of the world and their audience. And, the, and the God used these things to, along with the Spirit of God, create the scriptures that are reliable, inerrant, and infallible. So that's kind of cool, isn't it? So this is John. That's why I've, I'm going to keep talking about John because he's pretty important to my sermon. <laughs> and John, John shaped this opening of the, this prologue in a way that made sense to him and was ordained by God. This is how I want my son to be represented with these very words. Poetic words, big themes, beautiful thoughts about grace. That's organic inspiration. And we want to hold on to that very, very, in a very important, uh, for, for many, many reasons, more than I stated. Now let's talk about this status. If John could be our guide, if John could be our guide and, and help us understand the Messiah we don't know we're how to look for. If he could help us, he would first say, you have to have someone of extraordinary status. They have to be God eternal. And that's why he begins the first three verses of his prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then through, through him, all things were created. Everything that you can see was the result of his work. This compels us now to worship him. This is the eternal God. John says the whole created work, the whole created order is a result of his mighty work. Now this relieves us a bit of the the weight, I think, of, of ourselves being the center of the universe. We have someone who we can worship and produces awe in us. Colossians 1.17 puts it this way. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Is that the Christ of glory that you worship? You see, these truths are to lead to wonder and worship. Revelation chapter 4 has an image of a worship service going on in heaven, and they are worshiping God as creator. Has the creation, is the creation still communicating to you the, the wonder of God? Is it still enchanted? Is it still a, a miracle when you see creation work? When you see the, the animals that God has created, the flowers, the, the things that we we enjoy as a result of plants growing and animals living. What, what is it that is causing us to, to be diminished in our view of, of creation itself? John is recommending to us the eternality of Jesus and also him as a creator with the Father. We need a status in this Jesus that is remarkable. 
John, again, is our tour guide. John, again, is our personal guide, as it were, to, to the Messiah. He says you also need revelatory grace. Secondly, revelatory grace. There is a remarkable darkness in the human heart. We have only to look at the life of Jesus. We have only to look at the life of Jesus and see him do miracles, see him preach the gospel, see him communicate with compassion and love, and we see him point out the truthfulness of man's heart, and then we see the reaction of men. We see that they do not want this revelation. Jesus, as he walked this earth, was a continual revelation of God's will, of God's purposes, of human beings being held accountable to the holiness of God. And the more he revealed himself, the more people turned away. As I mentioned before, in John's gospel in particular, what's remarkable is to note that not a lot of people believe. It's a rather small group of people, at least recorded in John's perspective on things. There is a need for revelatory grace. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him. Oh yeah, how does that happen? Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did it happen? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We talked last week of that this is talking about the subject of regeneration. I mentioned that we're often focusing on Jesus, Jesus at the front door of our lives, knocking. But we believe that God's divine sovereign grace is not coming through the front door. It's going around the back side door and in through the basement and up into our hearts. And God does an inner work inside us that causes us to, of course, open the door and receive Jesus. Up until that point, his sweet, beautiful name is not interested. We are not interested in hearing him. We need revelatory grace. John, <laughs> John himself needed this revelatory grace. Just walking with Jesus gave him no advantage over us. How many times have we met someone who laments their time in this world? I am 2,017 years removed from the great days of the world when we could have walked with Jesus and sandaled feet on the beach. Why, I would have been a great believer then. You need God's revelatory grace means that he opens your eyes to see and of so many possible doctrines. John focuses on adoption regeneration, and essentially illumination. And look at verse 14. This all sets up the the climax of, of his prologue. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, what was that like, John? Oh, we saw his glory. Look at verse 14. And we saw his glory. That is a result of of verse 13. 
those who have been regenerated, given a new nature, now can see his glory. Uh, There were people who did not see his glory. They saw him as an utter fool, deserving of a cross. Are you taken by the idea that you care about Jesus? Are you taken by that idea that you're here? Are you amazed that you have an interest in these things? I hope you sense a kind of electricity going through your system. This is remarkable. I perceive something of his glory. I perceive something of his grace. I perceive something. I perceive enough. This is powerful. John describes it as fullness in verse 16. Now look at verse 18. Really interesting. I thought it would be important. I don't think I've ever explained this yet. No one has ever seen God. Look at verse, verse 18. No one's ever seen God. Now the ESV, the English Standard Bible that we have in our worship folder, says the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Um, now, various translations have like the Father's bosom, the old old English. Um, there with the Father, and the idea is that we have the Father, we have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here is John's insight into the essence of Jesus. He is of the same nature as the Father the same stuff of the Father. He's in on the Father's thoughts. God as he is in himself, this is how theologians talk, God as he is in himself cannot be seen by mere mortals. And so whenever God reveals himself, it is for us creatures He uses some mediatorial device, as it were. How could Moses see the invisible God unless he makes himself visible? And so there is a burning bush that is a temporary signpost and evidence of God's presence. Where will he go to find God's presence? Oh, there it is. And so what John is saying here, that this revelatory grace is that the Father has, has a face in the language of 2 Corinthians 4, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the representative of God. The, let me put it this way. The authorized representative of God is Christ, the eternal Son. He is in the closest relationship to the Father, the same essence, unity and purpose. One commentator said, the son was acquainted with the father's secrets. Deep intimacy and knowledge of the father. And this one is qualified to represent him, to reveal him. So, folks, I want to let you know that if you um, have a new nature by grace, if you have an interest in this glory uh, that is revealed in Jesus, I want you to know you have a feast of representation 
of the invisible God. Uh, this, is, this is what we're given. I want to commend this to you. And John, as our guide to the Messiah, says, well, what you really need are, are new eyes, new heart, new nature. You, yeah, that's what it's all about. And if you've got that, oh, you've got everything. John, in another way, puts it in, in, in his epistles. It's so beautiful. He says, this is the faith that conquers the world. That's another way of putting it. If you have the true, real deal faith in you, and some of you know this by experience, you conquer obstacles. You move through life, and you are not going to give up, though you are knocked down. This is the faith that overcomes the world. Well, that's a big concept, by the way. The world. And so the Father's plans for you in Jesus would be another way of summarizing it. The Father's plans for you can be known. How about that? The Father's plans for you can be known. And so John wants the world to know that God has provided the authorized representative of information and facts and knowledge and insights and truths about the Father's thoughts. And then finally, not only do you need someone with remarkable status, and not only do you need his grace and truth, excuse me, not only do you need revelatory grace, now you need grace and truth. And all these things are to lead to wonder in worship. Look at verse 14. I'll just be very quick here. The word, of, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then the contrast, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, and now the contrast, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. John is summarizing a very important part of our Bibles called the Old Testament law. And John is saying that that had a role. It now functions in the Christian life as a kind of family code. It's not disregarded. Romans 3 tells us it's actually established as, as Christians live in love. But John is contrasting this Old Testament life under law with this New Testament life under grace. It doesn't mean also that grace was not functioning in the Old Testament. But John is drawing out that in, if you want to know, if I am to be your guide to the Messiah, you must know the grace that's in Jesus, the grace that's contrasted to law. Now, here's my hope that the experience of all of us here today. When you think about law, you say, I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm guilty. I am a law breaker. And the law has only to tell you that. That is its role. There will be no forgiveness and no mercy as you hear the law of God. For instance, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. None. Not even alongside me. Not even my presence. Not even close to me. Not even in any proximity to me. In no comparison to me. You shall have nothing else that, 
that grips your heart. Can anyone say, oh yeah, that's me, sure. Why, nothing else has ever gripped my heart. Not a single person. The law exacts honesty from us. And of course, we are cleaving to Christ. Grace and truth in contrast to all that Moses revealed. Of course, John is saying, this grace and truth was revealed in Jesus. He pitched his tent using the language of the Old Testament tent structure, the tabernacle. God revealed his his grace and truth in the flesh of Jesus. That is a superior revelation. As as amazing as the giving of the Ten Commandments was in in, uh, Exodus 19, flashes of thunder and flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, all the amazing things, the, 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 the terror and the uh, amazing revelation, John is saying, even when God revealed himself in the Old Testament, nothing compares to this ultimate revelation. So it's John has been our guide today. Have you sensed his passion? Have you sensed his, his understanding of what we need? We need an exalted Christ, eternal with a remarkable status that's unparalleled. We need someone to give us revelatory grace that we could perceive and rightly understand these things. And then in Jesus, we need grace, grace, grace contrasted with the law. We need this remarkable revelation of God that he is able to overcome all the obstacles that would separate us from him. Do you believe these things? Do you believe these things? Has John been for us a glory seeker's guide? Let's pray. Father, the, the vibrancy of your word can only be our experience if you accompany your word with your power. Thank you for the revelation that's in Christ and that you have helped us even understand the very categories we should, we should learn to, to think about. Father, we love you. Thank you for your sovereign grace and sustaining grace in our lives. And in the name of Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen.